you to turn with me now to Lord's Day 27. There are some aspects of this Lord's Day that will bear upon uh, the sermon. But as a sermon involving baptism, it will be a bit different than usual in the sense that mostly we emphasize the meaning of baptism. And we intend to do that, hear that this afternoon or evening, but we often consider the mode as of very little importance. And yet, I have come to see that this is the, the key to understanding many uh, things that, even as a minister, were unclear to me. And I still find them, uh, and many uh, in the ministry, to be rather perplexed by some of these. And I'll make that clear later what's, what that is. So let's uh, hear what we confess here in Lord's Day 27 about baptism. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? And the answer is no. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Question 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. And then question 74, should infants also be baptized? Answer, yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Now I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 3. And our text will be the last four verses, 13 through 17. This involves, of course, John the Baptist, baptism of Jesus. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and life-giving word. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. 
And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, contrary to what so many people believe, even among the Reformed, baptism does not mean immersion. Nor does the sacrament of baptism, biblically administered, ever involve being dunked under the water. Such was never the biblical mode of baptism, but only a tradition adopted early on by an erring church and accepted as an almost universal practice by most evangelical churches today. And without doubt, it's why many young people, even from Reformed churches, who denying God's covenant claim on them by their baptism as an infant, think that when they come to faith, They need to take the plunge, so to speak, and get really baptized by being totally immersed in water. Now, besides the fact that because Ephesians says there is one baptism, we should never be baptized twice, we should also never want to be baptized in any other way than that made clear to us in the Word of God. Yes, of course we accept the baptisms of those baptized by immersion. And we love them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Make no mistake about that. But contrary to what some may think, the mode of baptism is of real significance. 
And it's important not for our ultimate salvation, but to properly symbolize the salvation it promises. For its mode cannot be separated from its meaning. Just as the mode of broken bread and poured out wine for the Lord's Supper cannot be separated from the meaning of Christ's broken body and shed blood given up for us on the cross. Pretzels and beer just doesn't suffice. Therefore, it does make a difference whether or not it is only death, burial, and resurrection that baptism signifies as supposedly symbolized by immersion or the descent of the Holy Spirit into the Christian's life, bringing cleansing from sin through union with Christ as truly symbolized by pouring or sprinkling. And just how important this is, we will see when we consider two points this evening. First of all, John's baptism of Jesus, and secondly, Jesus' baptism of us. First of all, consider John's baptism of Jesus. As Matthew 3.13 tells us, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, setting aside for now the uniqueness of Jesus' baptism by John, what was the nature of that baptism with which countless others had already been baptized by John? And more importantly, what was the origin of that baptism? Some say baptism was introduced by John the Baptist. Others maintain it was a Jewish custom to initiate Gentile converts by a rite of immersion and that Christian baptism is an outgrowth of this custom. But nothing could be further from the truth. For there was nothing about this practice that was new. Rather, the people assumed John to be a prophet sent from God precisely because he was baptizing. Notice the question asked by the representatives of the Pharisees, these, those eagle-eyed uh, heresy hunters, who would have instantly pounced upon John for the teaching of any new rites that they were not acquainted with and that were not in accordance with the law. For after John denied that he was the Messiah, nor Elijah returned to, to earth, they asked him in John 1, verse 24, Why then are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. By this question, the Jewish leaders clearly indicate that the Old Testament predicted the coming of someone who would baptize, and that it was by this activity that he would be known. But where is it predicted that the Christ, otherwise known as the prophet, would immerse anyone? Nowhere. But there are explicit prophecies 
where the activity of the Messiah and the Messianic age is associated with sprinkling or pouring. Isaiah 52 verse 15 says, So will he sprinkle many nations. And in Ezekiel 36 verse 25, God declares that then, in the Messianic age, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Thus, the Old Testament Jew not only knew about, but expected baptizing activities in connection with the Messiah. And this baptizing had nothing to do with immersion. The fact is, John's baptism was nothing new to the Jews. For ritual baptism is as old as the law. And there we find all kinds of ceremonial purifications. These are baptisms. Thus, from the days of Moses, they had known the ceremony of baptism. And the New Testament itself calls these Old Testament purifications baptisms. So, Hebrews 9, verse 10, describes various or different kinds of washings. And the original word translated as washings here is baptisms. Baptismois in the Greek for plural. In other words, the Old Testament knew of different kinds of baptisms. And Hebrews 9 goes on to describe four kinds of them in verses 13, 19, and 21. Baptisms that involve sprinklings of water alone, sprinklings of water and ashes, sprinklings of oil, and sprinklings of blood. So if baptism means immersion, we have a real problem, for it's impossible to find even one kind of immersion, let alone different kinds, as Hebrew says. But Old Testament baptisms were of different kinds, as Hebrew 9.10 makes clear. And so it's easy to find, and it's easy to find different kinds of sprinklings. All of them were ceremonial washings for purification. And as John 3, verses 22 through 25 tells us, this is what John and later Jesus were doing when they baptized. Now, when we come to Jesus' baptism by John, we see even more closely the intimate connection between baptism and the law of Moses. And though we should see the relation between the Old Testament baptisms and John's baptism to Christian baptism, we need to understand that Jesus' baptism was not the baptism of John, as we mean that phrase, and as it's normally meant, the baptism of John. This is unquestionably true, because the baptism of John was for sinners. But Christ was not a sinner. Furthermore, John's baptism represented repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus could neither repent nor receive forgiveness of sins. In addition, this baptism 
of John was to prepare a people ready for the Lord. But Jesus needed no preparation for receiving himself. No wonder John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In John's mind, there was no way that Jesus could be classed with all the others who came to him to be baptized. And John never changed his mind about this. But something that Jesus said did so change his understanding of what was happening that he readily baptized the Lord. So what did Jesus say? He said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. As Deuteronomy 6.25 tells us, righteousness involves obedience to the law. And as Galatians 4.4 says, Jesus was born under the law. That's why Jesus underwent the law of circumcision on the eighth day of being presented at his birth in the temple with the prescribed offerings. It's why he went to the Passover and observed all the Jewish feasts as commanded by the law. But what law was he obeying at his baptism? It was the law of Numbers 8, verses 6 through 7, which says, Take the Levites and cleanse them. Make them ceremonially clean, in other words. Thus you shall do to cleanse them. Sprinkle water upon them. The Levites were priests, and Jesus Christ was and is our high priest forever, not according to Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Nevertheless, Christ's baptism was the ceremonial act of his ordination to the priesthood. It was the rite that set him apart as a priest and a minister of holy things. Now, before any man could become a priest, three things were required. First, as Numbers 4, verse 3 and 47 says, he must be 30 years old. This is why Christ's age at his baptism is explicitly given as 30 years in Luke 3, verse 23. Second, such a man must be called by God to this office, as was Aaron, the first high priest, which is why Hebrews 5, verses 4 through 10 says that Christ was called by God to be our high priest forever. And thirdly, he must be sprinkled with water, as Numbers 8, verses 6 to 7 says, by one who was already a priest, as Exodus 29, 9 and Numbers 25, 13 declare. And this is why Jesus was baptized by John, who had inherited that office from his father, as Luke 1, verse 5 and verse 13 make clear. Thus Jesus who knew he was called to be our high priest by God his Father, waited until he was 30 years old, and then came to John to fulfill all righteousness. That is, to meet the last demand of the Old Testament law for a priest before he began 
his public ministry. Now, further evidence of the fact that Christ was ordained a priest by John's baptism is seen when he cleansed the temple in Matthew 21, verse 12, that he was exercising his authority as a priest. For when the Jews asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus pointed them to John's baptism, which he had received, and asked them concerning it, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And thus he was clearly pointing out the connection between his priestly authority and his baptism by John. But Jesus was not consecrated a priest according to the weak order of Levi as a descendant of Aaron, but of the infinitely superior order of Melchizedek. Thus he became our high priest, not that he might as the priest in the earthly temple offer continually sacrifices and offerings that can never, ever take away sin, but that he might once for all offer up himself as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. For he became a priest, says Hebrews 7, verse 16, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. This is the far greater and divine high priesthood that only Jesus could fulfill. Because though he was born as one of us, he is the eternal Son of Almighty God. And yet, yet, though born to be such a high priest, Jesus, who was born of a woman, born under the law, could not and did not absolve himself from the obligation imposed upon him by the law as a priest of God, for that law was the law of God. And that ceremonial law regarding the baptism of priests, which Jesus was careful to fulfill in every detail, was still in force. It was only abrogated when from the cross and through the eternal spirit, Jesus offered himself unblemished to God in the holy of holies in heaven and caused the veil of the temple to be torn in two when he cried out, It is finished! and died. Throughout all of his life and labors, it was his declared will and purpose to fulfill the law. And in regard to his baptism, it could be no different. Such is especially true of him who at his baptism was consecrated to be our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which means, you may know, king of righteousness because he came to fulfill all righteousness for us and to constitute us as perfectly righteous 
before our holy God in terms of his holy and righteous law. But Jesus' baptism also involved his anointing. For as verses 16 through 17 say in our passage, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. It doesn't say up from under the water. He came up from the water because water is always down, and to come up the bank, you have to come up. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It was only because Jesus had been ritually anointed in baptism with water by John and inwardly anointed by the Spirit who came upon him in real baptism that Jesus could apply the words of Isaiah 61 to himself that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Thus, if the descent of the Holy Spirit into the life, into his life, at this time of his anointing, was the real or inward anointing, of what could his baptism, with which it was inseparably connected, be, but symbolic of that anointing? But how could an anointing, a coming down upon or a resting upon, all the prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, of course. They, they had the oil poured upon their heads. How could anointing then be represented by immersion. It can't. And that's the simple truth, is that Jesus was not immersed, but anointed by John by sprinkling or pouring. Only in this way was he officially appointed to his messianic work as the anointed one. Those words mean what they say. If, in fact, he was immersed, then he was not the Christ the Messiah, for these words in the Greek and Hebrew respectively mean the anointed one. And only in this way could he have fulfilled all righteousness according to God's law, for immersion is contrary to what the law required and foreign to that which he as our Messiah and representative was obligated to fulfill. And it's he who was so baptized by John who will baptize you, says John, in verse 11, not with mere water as I do, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that brings us, secondly, to Jesus' baptism of us. Yes, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As John testified in John verse 31, verse 33, and Jesus himself in Acts 1, verse 5, it would be his people whom he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. But all unbelievers with the fire of his judgment. For as 
John said of Jesus in Matthew 3, verse 12, our very passage, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat, that is, his people, into the barn, and burning up the chaff, that is, all unbelievers, with unquenchable fire. But now, how is Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit pictured and described in Scripture? Well, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, that baptism is described as a resting on each one of them baptized, as a pouring out of God's Spirit, as stated by the prophet Joel and by Peter himself on that day. In Acts 11, verses 15 through 16, Peter describes that baptism as the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles, just as he says the Holy Spirit fell upon us. Now, John and Jesus themselves drew the contrast and connection between water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism. That though they clearly differ, yet they are inseparably linked. Clearly, there's a difference between real Holy Spirit baptism and ritual or the sacrament of water baptism because all people who receive the sacrament of baptism do not end up being believers and filled with the Spirit. And yet, as Ephesians 4 verse 5 emphatically asserts, there is but one baptism. Thus, as J. Adams rightly says, the only possible conclusion that one may reach is that the two must be but different aspects of the same thing. And if that is so, which it is, then it is only their identity of mode that shows it so. One is the external symbol of which the other is the internal reality. There is then water baptism and spirit baptism, ritual and real. And the ritual must symbolize the real, or it is no symbol at all, no sign, and it has no point. And so when we read again and again, as in Acts 10, verse 44 and following, that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and that they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. We hear Peter saying, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And thus it was the people who received the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit who received them. And so the people received the sprinkling, the water, as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's not the water that receives them. So in light of this, can we imagine any other mode to symbolize this pouring out or falling of the Holy Spirit upon believers in real baptism to be anything other than the pouring 
or sprinkling of water in the sacrament of baptism. For the reality and its symbol are uniform. So our water baptism was never meant to symbolize merely our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ as the immersionists think. Rather, but rather, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon our life by whom we are not only washed and set free from all the guilt and power of our sin, but united to Christ in the fullness of his glorious person and work and united with him not only in his death, burial, and resurrection as symbolized by immersion, they say, but united with him in his ascension, glory, rule, and judicial authority as judge even over the angels as well. As with Jesus, our baptism is also the symbol of our anointing as Christians who share in Christ our chief priest, our, I mean our chief prophet, our only high priest, and our eternal king. As those anointed to be prophets who confess Christ, our baptism shows that we're anointed to be priests who offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice of thanks and as kings who fight against sin and the devil in this life and who afterwards will reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. Thus, as Jesus was anointed at his baptism to be the Christ, so we are anointed at our baptism to be Christians. And it's Jesus who was not only baptized with the Holy Spirit, but who merited him by his perfect obedience and sacrifice on the cross in order to baptize us with the Holy Spirit as well. Thus, as Peter says of Jesus in Acts 2.33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And so Jesus has fulfilled at Pentecost and is fulfilling today the promise of Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Here again, the mode is described as sprinkling since the sprinkling with clean water symbolizes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who is to be put within. As on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But lastly, and more important still, baptism not only signifies the pouring of the Holy Spirit into a Christian's life and their cleansing from sin because of Christ, but their union with Christ himself. 
For Christian baptism in the name of the triune God is baptism into Christ. And thus the record of a Holy Spirit baptized person is not only negative with the actual cleansing of all their sin and their daily victory over sin, negative in the sense that now we're not sinful or declared sinners, but it is positive for joined to Christ, not only is the Christian's record of sin erased, but the entire righteous record of Jesus Christ, with whom the believer is positively identified, is credited to them, and by the Holy Spirit becomes their experience as well. And that includes the power not only to die to sin and live to God, being united with him in his death and resurrection, but as those sharing in Christ's ascension to seek the things above and to reign with him over all creation. Baptism by immersion can't picture this. For though based on Romans 6 and Colossians 2, supposedly, where the believer is said to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, these passages are not talking about the sacrament of ritual baptism at all. There's not one drop of water to be found in them. Rather, they're describing just two of the effects of real Holy Spirit baptism. And not the whole effect, but only two wonderful, though partial, effects of our union with Christ upon us. And that's the power to die to sin, to deny ourselves the gratification of our sinful desires, and instead to display our new life in Christ by living according to God's word and will for his glory alone. Well, that's wonderful, and that's true. The problem is, not only can baptism by immersion not picture even this, for Christ died by crucifixion. Immersion suggests death by drowning. Christ was buried in a room. Immersion, buried in water. Nor does it picture the resurrection of Christ who came forth not as a drowned person, with a wet and dripping body, but with a glorious resurrection body. But in addition to this, baptism pictures much more, as already said, for it pictures our union with Christ in all that he accomplished on behalf of his people. Romans 6 and Colossians 2 are only concerned with the problem of sin. And the argument there is that if you have been united with Christ in the fullness of his person and work as symbolized by baptism, then certainly you have been united with him in his death and resurrection. At least that much must be true of you, the apostle is saying to the Roman Christians and Colossian Christians. In other words, Paul is saying, don't you know that as many of us who share in all of Christ's benefits certainly share in these, his death and resurrection, and his implications regarding sin as well? 
That's it. That's all those passages are intending to make clear. Not at all that the mode of baptism is only to represent our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. So finally, what does it really mean to be baptized into Christ? It means the same thing as when 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2 says that in the miraculous crossing of Israel through the Red Sea, that they were all baptized into Moses. Well, clearly, the meaning here is not and cannot be that they were immersed into Moses, but that they identified with Moses. For the original word in Exodus 14, verse 31, means that they supported Moses, that they stood firm in Moses and believed Moses. At bottom, it means that they came under the controlling influence of Moses. And so, just as he passed from death to life, by passing through the depths of the Red Sea, so did all Israel who were baptized into him. What was true of Moses was true of Israel. And so our baptism is intended to mean for us, for those who are baptized into Christ, that what was true of him, what is true of him, is true of us. And the mode of their ritual water baptism is similar. For as Moses, as with Moses, notice, the ones who were baptized were not the ones who were immersed into the sea. Rather, it was those who were condemned as the enemies of God who were immersed. Those baptized didn't even get wet. And so it, so it was at the time of Noah's flood. Another picture of baptism, as the Apostle Peter tells us. For those who were baptized were identified with Noah in the ark. Again, who didn't even get wet. While it was those who were judged and destroyed as the inhabitants of the corrupt and unbelieving world, it was they who were totally immersed Beloved, if you have been baptized either as an infant or adult by sprinkling or pouring, you have been baptized indeed and in a way that, as Jesus says, fulfills all righteousness. Don't ever, ever seek to be baptized again. Only seek this that your water baptism be fulfilled by your Holy Spirit baptism. So as Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And make sure that you can say, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. And so, parents, make sure that you impress upon your children 
the significance of their baptism. Speak to them of the seriousness of their sin and of the infinite cost of God to wash away their sin by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, which God has promised them in their baptism. And declare to them day by day the abundant and glorious life that God has promised us in Jesus Christ. Who was baptized as our Messiah that we baptized with his spirit should know the fullness of life now and forever in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that truth that scripture does indeed interpret scripture. And we pray that in, in the face of much confusion about this, even a denial of the importance of these things, that it really doesn't matter. And yet, we see people acting as if it really does matter and being rebaptized, doubting their baptism, which is to doubt your promise in Jesus Christ that it was real or valid. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is sufficient, that we can know the truth and in this way too be set free from this confusion and doubt. Oh Lord, we pray, may we truly then live it out in our life. May we truly show that yes, we believe what you have signified to us in our baptism. That we are one with the Lord Jesus, that he is ours and we are his. And so, may we live out that truly abundant life and dying to sin, and living new lives for you, seeking the things above, not the things below, and knowing that as Jesus promised, he is preparing a place for us and a glory that we cannot even imagine. How we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have more than we could ever dream of. Help us to trust him and to live out to the full the life promised us in him. In his name we pray, amen. Let's